Hello, and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Kate Moody. In today's episode, we're asking, has financial services only been built for half the population? This episode is coming to you in the same week as International Women's Day, and we're taking the time to delve into what the impact is of a financial services system that has traditionally been dominated by men. But these conversations are not just for one day or one week per year. This is a conversation the industry has to have of itself on a regular basis in order to push through any real change. So in this show, we've put together a panel of amazing experts to discuss how have financial services products been shaped and how might that change? What is the impact of gender at the very top of businesses on vision and delivery? And what could the future look like with a more equitable industry? We'll discuss all this and more in today's show. But first, a few brief messages. Don't go anywhere. Buying a home is the biggest and most significant purchase most people make in their lifetime. And it doesn't matter where in the world you're buying, the process is really easy. In our latest report, experts from our 11FS Ventures team look at why the home buying process is broken, how we can fix it, and the massive commercial opportunity it presents for banks and fintechs. Download your free copy at 11FS.com slash homebuying. That's 11FS.com slash homebuying. This is Fintech Insider After Dark. We are breaking out of the studio and bringing it to the community. It's a live recording of the Fintech Insider podcast featuring your favorite hosts and big name guests. Well, thank you very much for having me back. Join us and become a certified Fintech Insider. Whether it's beers in London or pizza in New York, catch up with Fintech geeks and make new friends across the financial services ecosystem. This is packed out, right? This is standing yeah. moment. We are bringing After Dark to the Steel Yard in London on the 29th of March. Click the link in the podcast description or visit 11fs.com forward slash after dark. Thank you very much for joining us, everybody. Good night. Let's get started. As always, I'm excited to be joined by a panel of amazing guests who can shed some light on this super interesting topic. First off, it's a FinTech Insider debut for Becky George David, Executive Director of Product at JP Morgan Chase. Thanks very much for joining us, Becky. What can you tell us about you and your role at JP Morgan Chase, please? Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Um, this is my first podcast ever, so I'm pretty excited to be here. Um, like you said, my name is Becky. I work with JP Morgan Chase, specifically within the Chase UK digital banking business, uh, which launched in 2021. I am an executive director working as a product manager at Chase. So I look after product vision, product strategy, uh, building and leading teams that work uh, collaboratively and across function um, with groups such as design, engineering and uh, subject matter experts in the in the banking domain. So very pleased to be here. You're, you're super welcome. Chase obviously is absolutely smashing it at the moment. So congrats on that. But also, yeah, really excited just to get your take on, on all the stuff we're going to cover today. So thank you so much for joining us. We also have a debut on Fintech Insider for Danielle Raphael, Vice President of Dawn Capital. Welcome, Daniela. Can you give our listeners a bit of information about you and Dawn Capital, please? Yeah, definitely. Thank you also very much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Um, So as I say, I'm a VP at Dawn Capital. We're a VC fund. So we invest in early stage uh, businesses, 
we only look at B2B, so businesses that sell to other businesses, um, in software and fintech. And I spend most of my time looking at fintech here. Uh, I've had, a, I guess, a long accidental history of, of working in fintech and financial services. Before joining Dawn, I was at a fintech myself. Um, and then before that, I was helping uh, consulting with McKinsey on you know, many of the major UK banks. Um, so I've seen a real range, um, you could say, in terms of what constitutes finance and fintech. Um, so very excited to, to be here. Thank you. Fantastic. Well, as you say, like that's a, that's an awesome range of things to have covered. So looking forward to getting your take on, on everything as well. And last, but definitely by no means least, we have another debut for Alexia de Broglie co-founder at Juno. Great to have you here, Alexia. I've obviously just massacred your surname. I'm so sorry. But what can you tell your audience about Juno and, and your role there, please? Thank you for having me. Um, yes, I founded Juno about two years ago with my sister, actually, uh, with the mission to accelerate the closing of the gender wealth gap. And so we've built this app, which is coined sort of the Duolingo of finance, teaching women everything that they need to know about how to manage money, whether that is investing, debt, salary negotiation, it really touches on all different topics. And um, we've grown the team over the last two years, we're about 15 now, have 50,000 customers in the UK and have gone through a few rounds of funding. And so I am in charge of product uh, and I do all of the product development piece. Um, and I'm very excited to delve into this conversation because we've been thinking about this topic a lot with Marco over the last couple of years. <laughs> I'm sure. Well, again, thank you so much to all of you for joining me. Really excited to, to hear what you have to say. So on that note, let's dive in. Okay, let's start by looking very much at financial services products and their inclusivity towards women. So according to a 2019 report by the World Economic Forum, women are arguably the largest single underserved group of customers in financial services. I mean, to kick us off, firstly, you know, would our panel agree with that statement? Alexia, what do you think? Completely. I think um, it has not been intentional nor deliberate, but the male experience has been assumed to be the norm. Um, and so therefore we have found ourselves in a system that has just placed products with men's needs um, at the center. And they have also been built by men, funded by men. Um, and so, like I said, even though it's not deliberate, it is definitely something that is happening. Daniela, what about you? I would agree that it's not deliberate. I wonder, I was trying, I was puzzling, you know, when, when the prompt for the panel came through, I was trying to puzzle through whether it's a question of, are we lacking the ingredients to be on a par with men or are we lacking the recipe, um, as it were, um, in terms of the guidance uh, around how to manipulate what it is that we have access to, or whether it is the, the products themselves that are, are lacking. Um, and I still don't have a good answer. Um, but I think it's high time that it was addressed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just to kind of make sure we've all got a chance to get our thoughts on the ground before we get started. Becky, what's what's your take on that statement? Well, I mean, um, by sheer numbers, right, we are the, the largest group. If you think of women from a traditional gender construct as a monolith, um, you know, so it's it will be hard pressed to, to argue that there are other groups that make up over you know, 49% of the population um, that we could potentially class as, as on the serve, taking into account culture, race, you know, ethnicity, um, ability, orientation, all that category, it's still pretty much, you will be hard pressed to, to argue that women potentially um, are the largest on the served group. For sure. And no, I think that's a really interesting way of thinking it through. Um, and Alexia, I suppose, what does it, what does it look like in real terms to be underserved? Like, what are the types of uh, shortfalls or gaps that we're seeing in particular? I think it's about when we think about products and the sort of product development process, um, 
who is a product being built for and what needs are being considered. Um, in that sense, women are oftentimes not part of the conversation. And I'll touch on it a lot during this conversation, but I think there's sort of three different areas that we really need to look at. There is the teams that are building the products and the fact that they are largely men. Um, there is the product itself. How is it being built? What need? What problem is it solving? And again, here, oftentimes men are the norm. And then the last element, which is oftentimes very strongly overlooked, is around customers. How can we make sure that women here are being brought into the products, not just launching products and putting them out there, but making sure that they're actually being used by the right customer base? And I think this was probably what I have identified as the biggest problem at the moment. Um, we have a, a surplus of financial products. The financial industry is booming and has been over the last 10 years. And then there is this massive gap between all of the solutions that exist and the people that are actually using the solutions and aware of their existence. For sure. Um, and one thing I'm keen to just double click on sort of at the start of this episode is you talked in your intro about the gender wealth gap. You know, for our listeners who, it's quite an easy phrase to, to sort of trot out, but I suppose for our listeners that maybe haven't come across this before, like, could you could you break that down? for us so that we've kind of got that context to get us, get us going. Completely. There's a lot of different factors that feed into the gender wealth gap, but I think we all know the gender pay gap. There's the fact that women have more debt than men. There's the fact that women invest significantly less than men. There's the fact that women oftentimes are the ones that take career break or reduce their hours to be able to take care of family. And so therefore there is a massive gender pensions gap that also feeds into this. And then the top layer on above all of this is sort of the behavioral layer. And the fact that we are living in a society that is sort of dominated by outdated gender norms where women are still perceived as the spenders and men are still perceived as the breadwinners. And so that's something that we internalize and we end up behaving differently with our money as well. Brilliant. No, thank you very much. I mean, Daniela, from a VC perspective, how can you support products that address some of those imbalances that Alexia set out? It's a good question. And I think it, it varies a lot based on what kind of VC you are. So if you're a B2C investing in you know, products for consumers, then obviously there's a much more direct impact that you can have in supporting what you see. I would obviously caveat as well that unfortunately, perhaps unlike what you might read in the papers, we're not all knowing, all seeing, uh, and, and can't create these products and can't create trends. We can only support what we see and what we think is a, a massive opportunity. And so for us, for example, you know, one of the things that we're looking at from a B2B perspective is how do we you know, find businesses that are enabling the existing players to provide a much better experience for all, you know, all groups. Um, because ultimately, you know, as much as this is around uh, making sure that women are included, you know, from a much more, I guess, crude perspective, you know, banks and financial services that don't include women are leaving a lot of money on the table, right? Like, as Alexia said, we're not just spenders anymore. We're also, you know, big bosses and badass bitches, sorry, I shouldn't have said that, um, you know, making great money and investing and, you know, doing all these things. So, you know, banks are, you know, from what we see, very conscious of the fact that they need to find ways of addressing this need. And as a B2B investor, therefore, you know, the best that we can do then is to find these businesses that are enabling them to, you know, no longer work with legacy tech, which makes it super difficult and makes the cost really hard. And so I guess that's how, you know, we would see it from a VC perspective. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, yeah, to your point around you know, people leaving money on the table, I 
read a sort of Oliver Wyman report from 2019 that estimated that at a global level, $65 billion could be generated for banks just through mortgages and other credit approvals. So just in that sort of one particular part of financial services in, in that retail space, if women were approved at, at the same rate as men. So yeah, it's sort of one thing to kind of get excited about this as like a sort of moral or ethical topic, but it's also about business sense as well. Um, Becky, I suppose banks can often be portrayed as the bad guys in these conversations. You know, is it is that a fair portrayal? Obviously, you're kind of looking at it from, from the inside. How can banks look at gender from a product perspective? Yeah, I think um, the banking industry as a whole has quite a reputation, right, for, for being slow moving, backwards, um, not quite as innovative, but I, I think most of us in the room would agree here that we're starting to see a lot of the incumbent bank challenge that type of thinking, right? We're seeing innovation um, within the financial services space. Um, similarly to what Alexis said, it may be overly centered on payments, right? Uh, as opposed to innovating around other products such as savings and current accounts and, and the likes. But I do think that there are definitely some clear differences in the way the men and women live. Right. And um, women tend to live longer than men. We have interruptions in our careers. We may forego like high earning jobs to pay attention to our children as we as we get older for those sort of groups that decide to have kids. But we also manage wealth differently. And I think this is a space similarly to the wealth gap, which uh, Alexia is very passionate, passionate about, that I think banks can do a lot more work in. It's not necessarily the case of arguing whether banks are better than income, like incumbent banks are better than challenger banks in terms of the services that we provide. It's more so simply just recognizing across the board that there is a vast difference um, in the needs of men and women and making sure that the needs of women are actually being met. So just like other industries, we need to understand that we need to acknowledge the diversity of women's needs, and then we need to empower them with the with the knowledge and, and support through creating the right products. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I suppose just to zoom in an extra level on that, I suppose, like what are some of the basic fundamentals from a product owner's perspective that you think could change a financial services product to be more gender inclusive? Is it about language? Is it about imagery? Is it about like features, customer service? Like like what what types of like practical fundamental things do you think banks need to be focusing on in particular? Um, I think language definitely has a, a role, right? Um, gender inclusion within the financial services um, has to include some change in the way that women are spoken to. Um, someone mentioned earlier on the call that there might be a bit more sales speechy, a bit more pandering to, to women where you feel like uh, things have been dumbed down for you to understand, right? So we need to think about the ways that we speak to women and, and realize that women are starting to become decision makers um, and perfectly capable of taken on risk. It's, it's definitely a factor. I know there's a lot of research out there that says women are a bit more risk averse, but asking the questions as to why, right? The three layers of why to actually understand what drives that fundamental behavior, but ultimately a change in language and in placements, right? Where our products advertise, how are they advertised and, and how are they actually communicated? To, to customers? What are the impacts of using your product when you communicate that? Because women tend to be more interested in things that 
have a steer towards social good, right? Things that present equal outcome for other people. So how do we improve our languages in media as well as in um, advertising to make sure that that's reflected in, in our product offerings and the way that we market our products? Absolutely. Um, Alexa, obviously you guys are building products and services specific for women. So I'm, I'm keen to understand like what your perspective is on that. Um, obviously you guys, one thing I saw in particular, you guys have, I'm going to continue our bad language. Uh, you, know, you guys have your, your fuck off fund. Um, sorry, children, if you're listening to the show, um, could you talk us through, talk us through that, like whether you've kind of uh, applied any of the things that Becky was talking about and why you think that lesson is connected with your customers so powerfully? Completely. I think what Becky touched on is super important when it comes to language. And there's actually an example that I just wanted to bring to, to people's attention because I thought it was fascinating. They analyzed the language that we use on investment platforms and they found that a lot of it is catered to sort of men's priorities if we think of extreme sports. And so it's oftentimes using words like beating the market, which doesn't align at all with women's priorities. And once you start looking at the products with that lens, you do realize that there's a lot of war language, there's a lot of fight language, and it just doesn't yeah it doesn't align with the fact that women's priorities are a lot more around building safety for the communities so there's a big piece to be done around languages but to touch on 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 the importance of the fucker fund i think that was one of the most popular lessons that we have ever created and it just really highlights the fact that for women money is so much more than just money money is emotional money is a way to correct the imbalances in this world and money is power and money is freedom particularly um, when we talk about the fucker fund um, it's having enough savings that you're able to put yourself first and to get yourself out of any type of situation and um, the article that initially coined that term was really written during the me too movement and it just highlights the current zeitgeist where we look at power imbalances in today's society and we see money as a tool of, of correcting this when it comes to the creation process of the product, when it comes to Juno, we really make sure that we embed women's experiences in every step of the way. Um, and that goes from user interviews, the content creation process, and just really inherently building a product that is for women by women. And I just wanna touch on something that's very important for me here is during the entire conversation, we're gonna speak about women and men. And I think that feels very binary. And it also kind of assumes that women all fall under the same umbrella when we all know that there's a huge intersectionality conversation that should be having should be having place here as well and so when it comes to building Juno I'm a white woman and I'm never going to be able to fully relate to what it means to be a person of color and so we just make sure that we find the voices in the financial space that are already doing the work and we bring them into the conversation and basically let them have a space and and have a platform to build a product that suits them with us. Absolutely. That's, that's absolutely critical. Okay. Well, we've taken a good look at products. So I'm going to take one step back and we're going to look at the boardroom. So Becky, with big organizations such as banks with so many employees, how much does representation at the top of the organization impact how that organization operates? A lot. So I, I am female, I am black, and um, you know I have worked in banking for nearly a decade now. And it's amazing to come into a room 
in my team, for instance, and see that we're mostly women. I haven't had that in my career at all. Um, I come from an engineering background, so seeing representation at the junior level wasn't something I I saw. Um, it wasn't something I saw when I entered into my um first organization of Royal Bank of Scotland it wasn't something that I saw on the floors. So uh, joining a team where I can see majority female is also inspiring, right? I think women today control a massive amount of investment capital as well. So in the boardroom conversations, we are seeing that we also equally control a certain uh, value of shares of stock, right? Um, Corporate board sits uh, being filled by women as well, and we're seeing those numbers grow. We're not where we need to be, but we definitely can track progress. The percentage of director roles held by women on the boards of like the S&P 500 companies is at an all-time high today. And so every single progress is is meaningful, just like Tesco, every little helps, right? Um, We definitely see that coming through. So for me, what that means in real term is we're getting the unique perspective of our mothers, like wives, daughters, colleagues, business partners, increasingly making um, their stamp in the market as the market moves and and influencing the way that we speak around money and influencing the products that we create as a result of that. So I definitely have seen that representation sip through in terms of the products and and also the founder community, um, just in terms of the share female talents that we see striving to to found companies that are actually making a difference in the world. Yeah. Daniela, how does, Becky's given us a great insight into kind of that bank experience, but how does gender balance at VC firms impact the rest of the industry, do you think? It's difficult to say because VC funds are so different. Uh, They may all look pretty homogenous from the outside, but, you know, we have a 50-50 uh, you know, female, male, gender balance, which is great. And I really enjoy working here uh, as a result, but that's not necessarily the norm. And so, you know, whether that can, you know, whether one drop in the ocean, I'm not saying we're the only ones with a 50% diversity, you know, male, female balance, but, you know, whether that can make a difference in how VCs fund companies, you know, I, I don't know whether that's measurable. You know, I think having more women you know, at the top levels, making investment decisions around what we back can have, you know, outsized impact, you know, particularly where, again, perhaps more on the consumer side of things where, you know, there's much more empathy around huge problems that have been undervalued for ages. You know, femtech wasn't considered a viable investment opportunity until women got to the top and they said, I mean, absolutely, this is an enormous investment opportunity with 50% of the population and all of us have, you know, period pains or need to breastfeed and need solutions for this. And then you've built huge businesses out of someone being actually able to recognize that, you know, coming back to B2B, I don't know whether a female partner or a male partner is any better at evaluating whether banking software uh, is better or not. But I think what is good is having a diversity, a range of thoughts around the table. And that's something you get by having different types of people in a room. And that can only lead to better investment decisions overall. So I don't know if that necessarily answers your question. No, it's 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 all it's all really really interesting to hear. Obviously, it does sound like you know, what you guys have at, at Dawn Capital about kind of more equal split, as you said, like isn't necessarily the norm across the industry as a whole. Right? I think you know, research from Sifted fairly recently has shown that across Europe as a whole, eighty five percent of 
BCGPs are, are men. So I think it sounds like you guys have, have got a really niche spot. But there's, I mean, have you, do you see that as a, an actual point of competitive advantage that you do have that more diverse base? It's definitely a talking point. I've had several calls with founders who say, wow, it's really impressive to see two women on this call. So, you know, it's, it's a talking point uh, for sure. You know, but I think also that sifted headline. I mean, yes, many GPs are going to be men because they've been around for longer. And so I actually see lots of great signs of, you know, I think I, I almost look for men to speak to because I am aware that I basically speak to a lot of women who are VCs at the kind of more, you know, middle and junior side of, of the stack. So I think there's definitely, you know, signs of, of positive change um, coming through the ranks. But unfortunately, you know, becoming a GP isn't something you can do overnight unless you're, you know, really, really, really incredible. So I think that that will just take time to come through. But I think it's definitely heading that way. Fingers crossed. I mean, Alexia, I'm guessing you, know, you talked about raising a couple of rounds. You've obviously been on the other side of that. What's your experience been as a female founder? And, and why do you think we're not seeing we're currently seeing less female founders in financial services like that's just objectively true so we'd love to get your perspective on why you think that is mm, it's interesting i mean i think if you just look at female founders in general um sifted reported that last year it was under two percent of funding that went towards all female founded teams which is i mean such a huge gap in no other industry is it that bad um and Finances as a general financial industry um, is so male dominated that if you then also take this and trickle it down to the founder level, there's obviously even less um, female founders in the fintech space. And I also think it's interesting, you're met with a lot of skepticism um, when you are especially a young female founder in the fintech space. And we, there's a lot of research that suggests that in conversations with investors, we don't necessarily get the same type of questions. They're oftentimes more risk orientated rather than opportunity orientated. And um, when it comes to finance, I think that's only just exacerbated. Um, doing Juno, we focused on serving a female market. And so that significantly increased our confidence, but also our perception, I think, from investors, because it was like, okay, yes, they're women, but they're kind of serving women, so they probably understand that market. <laughs> I don't know how it would have landed if we built an app that was just for the general public. Um, I always wonder if I myself would actually have had the confidence to go for that. And I think the answer is no. I think I was only able to go into finance because I was like, I'm going to build something for women. So at least I understand that. Don't worry. Um, if it had been gender neutral, yeah. But I, I think that also speaks to, uh, you know, this is one of the things that I think about a lot as well, because you know, we are very aware and conscious of backing and wanting to back female founders. Um, but it's so much more, I mean, you know, Alexa, not to discount anything that you said around different experience and different questions, not to deny that at all. But it's so much more around, like, how do we create an environment where women feel like they can found companies, right? Because it's, it's as much about you know, I guess it's a very sales term, but top of the funnel, you know, you, we need more women who want to start businesses and feel like they are in a position to do that, maybe because they have a fuckle fund and they think, you know, great, I'm going to go start do this. And it's how do we create, like, I feel like it is a much more entrenched thing in our system as a whole that means that women overall don't feel supported or comfortable or encouraged to start businesses and then, then can go raise money and then face all the, you know, trials and tribulations of, of raising money in 2023. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. It's it's super, super nuanced. So there's there's no kind of like one singular thing that's wrong. It's such a massively complex mix of like societal issues, systemic stuff. So um, tons to unpick. I don't think we can have a conversation about this topic without raising the, the Q word quotas. So um, 
you know, obviously there is still a lot of imbalance across financial services as a whole. Do we see quotas as a valuable tool? Um, Becky, I'd love to get your perspective. I think obviously big institutions are more likely to be subject to them than, than fintechs. Yeah, I think quotas have been quite instrumental um, in just getting focus on the offerings from from banks and, and most of the financial services sector. So the 30% um, boardroom drive was definitely a quota, right, that we've had to hit in the UK. I don't think a lot of big organisations would have committed to making that change. Was there no um, symbol or a potential PR stance that they could take? So it looked good. It became a competition. XYZ Bank is doing it, therefore we need to up the number of women in, in the boardroom. Some of that you could attribute to what people would say is 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 positive discrimination. You know, uh, putting women in roles simply for the for the chance that they are women, right? It's 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 saying, hey, I've only hired you into this boardroom seat because you're female. Well, guess what? She's there. She's there. She's going to make a difference, right? Because when women step into those type of roles, research has shown that they fight for more equal outcomes for everybody. Um, And then what you see is culture being changed. You see business delivery being changed. You see behaviors and the way that we achieve our results being changed. You have someone like Alison Rose, who is now the CEO of the the RBS group, right? So she's bringing a lot of change into, into RBS as an organization. So I do think quotas definitely play a role. It's very, very common for men to push back against these quotas. And even women, sometimes I get uncomfortable with quotas because I don't want to see as a as a gender token in an organization. But I think there's also a privilege that comes with being able to get into the room in the first place and have a voice, have a sit at the table. Um, and I think that's, that's highly valuable. For sure. Um, I'm sure we could probably spend like the whole rest of this show talking about the the pros and cons um, of quotas, but I'm going to move us on. We're just going to take a quick pause here back very shortly. A lot of you know 11FS for our chart-topping podcasts, our events, videos, reports, and a bunch of other cool stuff that we do. But what a lot of you don't know is that this is just all our side hustle. We do so much more than that. At 11FS Ventures, we're partnering with ambitious businesses around the world to design, build, and launch truly digital financial services. We are building banks, shaping new propositions, and growing existing offerings that change the fabric of financial services. And our design, research, strategy and engineering experts are working to improve your customer's relationship with money. To find out a little bit more, check us out at 11fs.com forward slash ventures. Okay, we've talked about the products and the boardroom. So for this final section of today's show, let's look to the future. With conversations like the one we're having today and with the encouraging statistics around representation across the board, how positive are we in this group? about the future financial services. Um, do we think that it can be more balanced than we've seen in the past? Daniela, what do you think? I mean, I, I think it has to be. Yeah, I, I feel positive. Uh, you know, fantastic people like Alexia are working to change it from the ground from the ground up, but also, you know, from the top down. Forget, you know, leaving aside the PR disaster to be found to be the least equitable, you know, financial service in, you know, X list. Um, 
you know, back to the point I made earlier, you know, you can't afford to leave money on the table. You have, you know, 50% of the population who are, you know, independent, you're no longer, you know, Mrs. Name of Husband. Um, you know, we're out there making our own money, spending our own money, investing our own money. Um, and so I, I think it can only get better because financial services can't afford for it to not get better. No, I'm, I'm on board with that. I think one trend that's, that is really interesting is to look at sort of emerging markets and kind of how some of those, you know, some of the differences we're seeing. So, you know, so I think uh, I saw a survey recently that in Uruguay, for example, 47% of fintech startups there had at least one woman as a founder or co-founder. Um, in India, I think one fifth of fintech firms have a female CEO or founder. So, do you have any perspectives on, on why that might be? So so I I am African, right? I'm Nigerian, and um, we definitely have a lot of female female leaders um, in core decision making roles. And we definitely have a, a good percentage of female founders as well. And I think when we think about founders, we oftentimes don't think about businesses that are offline. Right. So we count for businesses that are completely digital uh, because I guess they, they, they're scalable. But in Africa, I think a big chunk of that comes from just the sheer amount of uh, hard work that people need to do in order to just make a living. So having formal jobs is not something that the mass population can attain so people turn towards entrepreneurship so entrepreneurship is something that within each family you probably find someone who is an entrepreneur who isn't in a full-time job so it's something that we're definitely more comfortable with and we can see that pull through um, in terms of the numbers of female leaders, whether in formal organizations or more so informally. Um, but we're yet to see that shift in the high growth areas, right, in the in the fintech space. But I think that's only a matter of time. No, super interesting. One of the things I'm keen to get your perspectives on is obviously we're moving into an, an economic downturn, hot off the tail of a pandemic, which we know has has set back progress for, for women. You know, women are much more likely to be concentrated in those informal uh, work sectors more likely to have taken a heavy burden of kind of care responsibilities as other support networks fell away during the pandemic so how does how does financial services keep gender equality at the forefront how do we help women not be set back further alexia i think it goes back to really listening to the customer knowing that women's needs will be different during these times than men's needs and providing the extra support i think oftentimes um when the economy takes a downturn, we can see that gender balance kind of gets put on the back burner. But I think this is really a moment and an opportunity for businesses to step up and to and to truly cater to women's needs. If we think um, and address the fact that women don't necessarily respond to the same type of message as men do. So just in terms of customer acquisition, for example, it probably will cost a lot of effort and significantly higher cost to fintechs to acquire and serve a female audience. So if you're building an investment platform, for example, and you're running customer acquisition experiments, I think there's a high likelihood that your CPI will be lower if you're targeting a male segment than if you're targeting a female segment. And that's just because men have traditionally not been left out of the financial industry. So they're more confident, they're more educated on investing matters. And so unsurprisingly, they're also 
representing a higher percentage of the UK retail investor customer base. And so the convincing that you need to do to get a female investor is probably higher than the convincing that you need to do to get a male investor. But I think the conversation around quotas should almost go beyond just something that is internal and something that uh, touches on the team composition, but also on the customer base. If a financial company has gender equality on its agenda, then I think making sure that the customer base is closer to attracting 50-50% is a super important consideration to have. It's a bit unfortunate, just, you know, uh, the economic downturn impacts everybody regardless of gender, uh, but it does have a gender face to it. Women are most likely to be on the receiving end, right? Um, it's it's a well-known known fact that women have lower levels of savings, for instance, or that we are more likely to go into debt. And when you have um, socioeconomic crisis, Therefore, when the poorest people get hit in society, they tend to be women in general. So we therefore have a higher burden. We also don't have the same degree of flexibility uh, because we're essentially competing for basic resources. So everyone's been impacted at the moment by uh, vegetable rationing here in the UK, you know, amongst like the rising energy, energy bills. But because women tend to steer towards safer investments, right? Um, and savings is definitely something that uh, a lot of women are being encouraged to do. So when we talked about language earlier, we said language tended to pander to women as being less understanding of finances in general. And as such, women tend to have better saving habits. Now, it will be fantastic to see banks and financial services innovate a bit more um, around savings as a product, because that seems to be a product that women are comfortable with. What is the reason why? What innovation can we do in that space? Like I said earlier, the payment space is just every Tom, Dick and Harry, right, uh, owns a payments company and is doing one thing in the payment space or another. So it would be fantastic to see some more unique innovation um, in the saving space and in other products. Yeah, no, I think it's super interesting. I think, you know, there is there is some analysis that shows that like that kind of savings investment preference sort of stems all the way back to childhood that, you know, young females are raised to focus on savings and, and young men or boys are kind of more encouraged to think about investments. But um sadly I don't think I, I don't think we can dive into that. I haven't got time to dive into that in, in more detail, sadly, um, because we've very, very sadly hit the end of our time slot. So I've got one last question for all of you, just to to round us out. So we started the show with the question of has financial services only been built for half the population and I'm going to do a very mean thing and ask you to give me like a quick fire answer to, to what you think. So Daniela, what do you think? I don't think it was built for half the population, but I think a large proportion of the population doesn't leverage it or cannot leverage it in the same way. Nicely done. Alexia? I'll finish on a quote from a book, Invisible Women, that I recommend to everyone, which is, the result of this deeply male-dominated culture is that the male experience, the male perspective, has come to be seen as universal, with the female experience, that is half the population, as is seen as well niche. And I think that encapsulates it perfectly. <laughs> Always love an Invisible Women quote. Becky, what's, what's your take? Yeah, I definitely think um, that the male perspective has indeed driven a lot of the innovation that we've seen in product offerings in the financial services space. Um, and I think as women continue to evolve in our 
way of thinking and the way that we live our lives and the opportunities that we get and we continue to advance um, economically and socially as well um, that financial services can do a better job in making sure that we innovate around products that could improve the outcome for women and uh, actually serve women. Fingers crossed. Well, That wraps up today's discussion. Thank you so much to all of you for joining me. I've learned so much from from all of you. Where can people find out more about you and your companies, Becky? So yeah, my name is Becky George David again. Uh, It's been a pleasure being on here. You can find me on LinkedIn. It's Becky George David, George David with a hyphen in between. Awesome. And yeah, very excited to see what happens next with with Chase. Definitely keeping an eye on you guys. Um, Daniela, what about you? I think my answer is very similar. Uh, Daniela Raphael, you can find me on LinkedIn. And the Dawn Capital website is very easily dawncapital.com. Nice. Alexia? Just go to your Juno on Instagram on the App Store. It's very simple. <laughs> Fantastic. And you can find me on LinkedIn, Kate Moody, or on Twitter at K8Moody. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us to make it better and it helps others to find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media, just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thanks very much. Goodbye. Goodbye.